Amen. Turn around and say hello to someone tonight and then be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, I am so thankful for the peace that passeth understanding. And God gives us that kind of peace. I'm thankful that He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Praise the Lord for the truth of that. And um, we have, of course, a number of things I want to bring to your attention. We are in the midst of a campaign to raise as many Bibles, give as many Bibles to third world Christians as we possibly can. We surpassed our goal already last week, but we are blowing right past that now. Over a thousand Bibles donated so far. Praise God. Eight dollars per Bible. Help us out and give to that fund. Give the gift of God's Word. Amen. And um, also, I want you to know that following the service tonight, we'll meet briefly. We're going to talk about uh, this important upcoming soul-winning event. Now, you see, the, the, uh, the Beast Feast is not just about food, though it is about food. It's not just about hunting and fishing, although hunting and fishing is kind of the venue. But the main thing is souls for Jesus, and has been ever since we started this thing way back when. And uh, once again this year, we're going to remember evangelist Gene Bray. What a soul-winning, godly man he was. And he's going to be with Jesus back in, in uh, 2019. And, uh, but he's left a wonderful, wonderful spiritual legacy. And the Beast Feast is a soul-winning activity going after men and boys. Now, we love women and girls, don't get me wrong. But this activity is particularly about getting men and boys together. We're just, we're using the excuse of the food and the hunting and the fishing to give them the gospel and to win some souls to Christ. And we hope to see uh, folks uh, get saved and come back and be part of the program. I need everybody here and everybody out there to give me 100% on this. We're in a transition year. We couldn't do uh, the Beast Feast last year. We just barely got it in in uh, 2020, but in 2021, we could not conduct one. And so we've been off a year. We've had some people move. We've had some folks who haven't come back to church yet. And so we are in a transi transition state. I need everybody to work. I need everybody to pray, everybody to help, everybody to invite, everybody to cook times two, everybody to prepare and to serve and to work and to clean up times two, everybody to do their part. And when the dust all settles, we'll sit down and Daquan will catch our breath and we'll say, praise Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the souls, the precious souls. I, as I'm looking out at the crowd right now, I'm envisioning the crowd downstairs every year. Fifteen of those beast feasts. Fifteen of them. And I can remember watching at the invitation. Always, I got to share something with you. I'm always apprehensive because the devil is very active. He knows that we're all about soul winning. He knows that we learned our lesson well from our mentor, Dr. Hancock, who said, Brad, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's always about soul winning. It's about drawing the net, Ed. I mean, we don't do anything. Around. We don't have any kind of party or activity without giving the plan of salvation and drawing the net and watching people get saved. I remember the very first Beast Feast. I was so apprehensive because <clears throat> I was letting the evangelist do the preaching and he was drawing the net. But praise the Lord, there were, I think we're 12 saved that first Beast Feast. And every Beast Feast thereafter, we've had between 12, 20, up to two dozen saved 
professing Christ. And I can remember, I can remember looking back there and uh, I can remember one young man in particular. Debbie, I think you know who I mean. One young man back there. And uh, when it came time for the invitation, his hand went up. I said, oh, how precious. Oh, how sweet. Oh, how wonderful. And many of you have had loved ones, family, and friends that have come to Christ, people that you've invited through the beast feast. We're never going to change that emphasis. It's always going to be, I need you to stay after the service tonight. Help me. Help me to promote. Make some phone calls and uh, do, do your part. Do your work. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Now, tomorrow night, we will have our uh, Central Baptist Church Faithful Men's Meeting. Uh, we'll set up some tables here, but also we're doing it uh, uh, virtually. And uh, so that'll be 7.30 on Monday evening. Then Wednesday evening, we'll be here for Bible study, but also for our annual report meeting. It's a good report. 2021 was a great year because God brought us through. We're going to have a great report meeting Wednesday night. Don't miss it. The whole report meeting takes about five minutes. But, you know, we, we, don't, uh, we don't have knockdown, drag-out business meetings here, but we do have some good ones. And that's a good one. And looking forward to it. And then on through the week, Saturday, this is good now, Saturday, 9 a.m., we're going to clean. But then at 10 a.m., I'm thinking, Daquan, if we can get individuals and families on visitation and get them to bring their kids if they can you know, control and take the kids with them. And we'll, we'll take a couple of hundred packets, door knock uh, packets out. And, uh, and in them, we will have the Beast Feast information. And this is the time for us to really go all out. Gung-ho is the word. We want to go uh, to get as many people this Saturday. And we can win some souls, but let's invite some people. Let's get some folks uh, interested in the Beast Feast, interested in the church. Let's do that. And afterwards, I don't know if you want to kind of think about this, but that would be a good time to kill two birds with one stone. The folks that have worked so hard, Dutch treat, maybe maybe I'll go to a fast food place or something and let the kids play on the toys. You know what I'm saying? Have a little fellowship, a little get together because God's people enjoy that sort of thing. Amen? Amen. So let's, let's go for that this week and let's have a crowd. And then next Sunday, of course, we'll all be in our place. Say, preacher, what you so excited about? I've never gotten over the thrill of being saved, and I never will. And I thank God that even in difficult times, He does for us everything that's necessary to keep us going, one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. I, uh, I'm very thankful that the Word of God, which we have, is 100% inspired and preserved. We have no mistakes in the King James Bible. I'm glad that I can count on everything this book says. And when I'm feeling low, when I'm feeling down, you say, Preach, you don't ever feel low or down. There are some times when, when the, the devil brings me pretty close to, uh, to being down. Never quite have gotten there yet, but uh, I, I understand that uh, many folks do. And what God gives you in those hours of difficulty and challenge and darkness is a thing called comfort. And you can't put a price tag on that. Comfort. He's given to all of us of himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he is the comforter. The comforter has come. And the comfort, comfort that we get from the comforter, he comes alongside of us and he reassures us.
And we have the Lord comforting His people in all these difficulties and challenges that we face in life until the storm passes by. Uh, my wife and I were going through some of the Psalms, and Psalm 56 speaks of this. I want you to turn there with me. Psalm 56 tonight. Philistines had taken David in, in Gath, and he cries out to God. He does what everybody who knows the Lord has every right to do because he is our spiritual daddy. He's our father. And it says here in Psalm 56, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would, would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. There's your recipe right there. If ever there was a time of fear, a time of apprehension, God provides this thing called trust, faith. And that's the answer for fear. The answer in the face of that which seems to be logical or obvious, uh, fear and widespread fear, commonly held fear, is for us to have that uncommon faith that comes from the presence of God and the promises of God and the power of God through our life. Mark that down. See, God hasn't left us. And so we've got that, we've got that presence, we've got the promises of God in the Word, we've got the power that's available through the Holy Spirit. When we're facing uh, huge challenges and the devil would try to discourage us and his ultimate goal is to get you uh, out of the game and on the bench. He wants you out of the action because as long as we are in, in the power and the strength of the Lord participating in this thing, the business of God, the devil realizes that he's not going to get anywhere. We, we are going to succeed because we have the Lord. So we trust in Him. In God, I will praise His Word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. So what, what are the things that flesh can do unto us? Flesh can hurt your feelings. Flesh can hurt you emotionally, physically. Flesh can, can hurt you in a number of ways, your reputation, uh, all those things. But even after that's all said and done, what have we got? We've got the Lord. We have Him. So we don't fear what, the, what flesh can do. Every day they rest my words. They twist your words. They twist uh, your meaning. They twist your intentions. They, they misrepresent your motivation. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. Now they think by a cooperative effort against the child of God that somehow they're going to gain advantage. And all that is is an apparent a visual kind of effort on their part. But it's not effective. Uh, if everybody in the whole world is against you, Christian, and God is on your side, what have you got to fear? Nothing. Nothing. We've got the Lord. And so every day, they're, they're gathering themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears 
into thy bottle? Are they not in thy book? In the Middle East, as well as in several other cultures, there is a very quaint uh, uh, habit, and that is to collect tears. When individuals are going through a trying time and tears are coming, the tear ducts are flowing, to gather those tears, the saline uh, tears in a bottle and, and keep them. And this is for purposes of demonstration and expression that they, they have been feeling this deeply. They've been hurting deeply. They've been experiencing sorrow deeply. This is in the Psalms here in verse number 8 to point out that God takes note of your tears. God takes note of every heartache and every sorrow. He knows everything. In fact, my Bible tells me that he is a man of sorrows and he is acquainted with our griefs. That's what Isaiah says about the Lord Jesus himself. God is keeping a record of your sorrows. He's keeping a record of, and you say, why would he do that? He's keeping a record of your tears because it matters to him. It matters to God how you're feeling and what you're going through. And when those things occur in your, in your experience, it matters to Him and he is, he is marking it down. When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. If God be for me, who can be against me? Amen. In God will I trust and will I praise His word. In the Lord will I praise His word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. Look at this. Look at all the times. Mark all the times that praise is mentioned in the context of this difficult human experience. Still there's praising going on. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And again I say rejoice. This is the recipe, Christian. This is it. Now, Folks who know what you're going through or have an idea that you're going through something, they may not have all the detail unless you fill them in, uh, they will think that you have you know, flipped your lid, that you are nuts in that you are rejoicing in the midst of trial. But the Bible says always. That means all the time and in every situation. Rejoice in the Lord in every situation, all the time. And again, I say rejoice. There it is. So, Praise the Lord, I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. There it is. There it is. Till the storm passes by. I'm sure there are some finer points to be made. But I want to say tonight that a lot of people are experiencing sorrow. Sorrow is common to so many of us. And the reason it is common to so many of us, as we're going to point out tonight, is that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job said. We're going to encounter in this world all kinds of difficulty. And people will come to the point that they believe it would be better if they didn't have to have these sorrows. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, as Psalm 56 has pointed out, Sorrow can be caused by a number of things, can come from a number of different sources. And we're going to share those tonight. The common uh, sources to the human condition of the sorrow and the sadness that we have mentioned. 
Let's pray. Father, fill me with the Spirit. I pray that you'll help me tonight. I ask, Lord, that, that some of this will sink in deep and we'll leave tonight understanding that we'll, we'll always have some of this in this life. It's going to happen. It's going to, it's going to be part of our journey. But when we get to heaven, we'll see a purpose, a reason, and we'll rejoice and we'll thank you, Lord. And in the meantime, help us to have faith and to trust in you and your word and to believe you as we take each step by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, sorrow and sadness and heartache and difficulty. Everywhere we turn, we seem to see this on every hand. It was Robert Browning Hamilton who wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I mentioned this morning Pastor Meredith Sears. Pastor Meredith Sears has <clears throat> no problem with God. He has no bone to pick with God, even though he's paralyzed from the waist down. He's in a wheelchair. Probably will be for the rest of his life unless God chooses to miraculously heal him and restore his spine, which is so damaged. But he believes there are no mistakes with God. And he's going to go on serving. And yet other people have a hard time accepting his difficulty, his sorrow, his sadness. Today, as we were at lunch, I received a phone call. The phone number was not familiar. In fact, I, I recognized it was coming in from one of the institutions of, uh, of uh, the <coughs> state of South Carolina. And the phone call was from somebody named Robert, but it turned out that it was actually from Jack Allen because Jack didn't have his, his pad, which he uses to call me frequently. We talk, we pray, he talks with us. And uh, Jack Allen, as you know, is the man who was convicted of murder, sentenced to die, and then his sentence was overturned by the Supreme Court. He has spent 50 years behind bars, and he is now 80-plus years of age, and his cancer has come back. But he was on the phone, and we were there in the restaurant. I began to speak to him, and he, gave me, he broke me the news. He said, Brad, he said, I'm in hospice. I'm terminal. Uh, the cancer has come back. They can't do anything. It's the liver. And I don't know how long I've got. He doesn't know if he's got days, hours, weeks, but his time is limited. And I texted you, Ed, today, and I said, I'm feeling bad. I feel like I'm about to lose a brother. In 1979, I led Jack to Christ in prison. His life has been radically transformed. He's now the, he's the old man that everybody comes to and they ask for advice. He's the one who leads them in prayer. He's the one who, uh, who was instrumental in my going down a couple years ago and having a revival and we saw so many souls saved and we saw men uh, get baptized and uh, praise the Lord. It was a wonderful two-day revival that we had in the, in the prison there 
in South Carolina. But now, there he is. And yet, he wasn't depressed. He was, he was, not, he was not depressed. He, he says, God's got this. God's got this. And I have to agree, even though my heart is breaking, God's got this. Many miles from here, as I asked Ed to close in prayer today, there's an individual who's about to make a horrible mistake, and I have prayed that God would intervene and do whatever is necessary. I said to my sweetie, it, one of the hardest things you ever have to do is turn your friend over to God for an intervention and stand up for what's right and not just stand up for friends who are wrong. I want the best for my friend, but I know there's going to be some terrible lessons learned. And so there's a lot of sorrow going around right now, and we're experiencing a bunch of it right now. I want to thank you for your prayers as you've been praying for your preacher and for Gwendolyn, because we know, we know what it feels like. Tears. Tears collected in a bottle. We didn't collect them in a bottle, but there have been enough to fill a couple of bottles. And that's, that's, no, that's no exaggeration. I want you to put this down so that you'll understand. The different sources of sorrow have something to do with what we're going to learn, the lessons we're going to learn as, uh, as Robert Browning Hamilton has written, you can walk along with pleasure, but you won't learn anything. You won't get any wisdom. Pleasure doesn't give you any wisdom. Sorrow. You walk with sorrow, you'll get some wisdom. You'll learn some lessons. Sorrow can be caused, number one, by sin. Sorrow can be caused by sin. A, yours, be self-inflicted. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Or sorrow can be caused by the sin of others. David was reflecting on this. He's saying, they're trying to swallow me up. They're trying to destroy me. They're shooting arrows at me. They're trying to crush me. They're trying to, you know, it's like a storm. And God permits sometimes the sorrow to come because of the sin of others. And yet God does this, giving us grace that we might learn to trust Him, that we might depend upon Him. And the deeper and the darker the valley that we go through, and the more we trust the Lord, the greater the victory when we come out the other side. This is not a happy time for anybody but it may be a necessary part of our growth. And that leads to number two, what I'm going to say. I, I can speak to the truth that sometimes that which is permitted by God can serve to mold and make us to be better rather than bitter. We have a choice. If the problems that you've gone through inflicted upon you make you bitter, then nothing is gained whatsoever. Nothing is gained whatsoever. Say, but I don't deserve this. I, I'm innocent. I, I shouldn't have to go through this. This is because of somebody else. This is no choice of mine. Welcome to the real world. Welcome 
to the development that God has permitted in your experience so that you can become a trophy of His grace. So that the end result will be better than that at the beginning. So sorrow can be caused by your sin and mine, or it can be caused by the sin of others, the wrongdoing, the mistreatment by others. And God can permit that and give us grace to get through so that we are strengthened and we are molded to be better and not bitter. Don't ever become bitter. Number three, sometimes He tells us why. And sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He says, I'm going to tell you why, but not now. I'll tell you later over on the other side. And there is also the possibility that He won't tell us why, as in Job's case. Job suffered, went through that suffering, and never, never did get the full script, but he trusted the Lord. He had faith in the Lord. And he came out better in the end than in the beginning. And it may be that you and I will not know why we've gone through some of the things we've gone through. God knows that's all that's necessary. I don't have to know. Maybe you're one of those take charge people. Maybe you're trying to do God's job. Stop it. Give it up. Say, I just have to know. I just have to know. You may not know. And let me tell you this. If you don't know on this side, we probably aren't going to care too awfully much on the other side. I know when I awake in His presence, in His likeness, I'm going to be satisfied. And I'm not going to need to know anything. I'm just going to be glad. I'm going to be satisfied. Praise the Lord. So this whole business of sorrow is really part of God's toolbox. God doesn't make people sin. People choose to sin on their own. But God is still sovereign. Let me explain that to you. If, uh, if <clears throat> the President of the United States were to say, I'm for law and order, and sometime in the middle of the night, the 7-Eleven gets robbed. The president is for law and order, but the 7-Eleven still got robbed. How can that be? Because there is wickedness, little pockets of wickedness. There are sinners and sinfulness in this world. And so even though the, the, the chief uh, <clears throat> law enforcement official of the United States of America is against it, the 7-Eleven still got robbed. And that's it in life as well. God, who is sovereign, not only knows that it's going to happen, but then he can, he can cause things to happen, turn things around, and for His glory, things can, can come out better in spite of that. I don't understand how it all works, but I believe that it does. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who knew plenty of sorrow in his life and experienced a thing that they called melancholy in his day, but it was just what we would call depression. So much so that the pastor of the world's largest church, the most successful ministry anywhere in his day, had to take long periods of time and go to the French Riviera and rest 
and sit out in the sun and get his strength back and get his bearings back. He's not the only one. Your pastor has had the joy and privilege of knowing many, many great Christian servants of God in my lifetime. And I could tell you, but I won't, obviously. Confidence requires that I take this to the grave. But I have known some, some great, great men of God who in the pulpit could do a, a, a wonderful work for the Lord and preach a message that the Holy Spirit would attend and would, would work in the hearts of people, wonderful decisions. And then when I was alone with them in private, I would see their melancholy. That's a nice way of saying they were depressed. They were depressed. You say, how can it be that great men and women of God can experience melancholy? Because we're all human, that's why. But when, when it's all done, if you look up and you see the Lord and you experience the sunlight of His love, you understand that sorrow sometimes is a vehicle that God uses. God uses that vehicle to work a work of grace in our life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way, There is a sweet joy that comes to us through sorrow. Someone else has said, Every sorrow is the shadow of God's hand. Whew. Every sorrow is the shadow of God's hand. Don't think for one minute that God has forgotten you or neglected you. He knows what you're going through. You say, but preacher, I've been disappointed. I've been let down. I've been mistreated. I've been abused. I've gone through <clears throat> deep waters and difficulties, and I've got problems in this area and that area, this, this uh, venue. God knows all about it. And he knew about it before you knew about it. And he may have permitted it for a very, very special reason. Walt Whitman, you know who Walt Whitman was, said there were two events that so shook him, he almost did not recover from the two events in his life. said the first one was the Bull Run defeat, number one. It's when the Union armies went out, and they, I mean, they had fancy uniforms on and decorative, you know, they, these guys who had never been to battle had, had sabers and guns that they had never fired, and they went out to the first battle of Bull Run and got slaughtered by some country boys from down south who, uh, who uh, with their gun, could, could shoot the eye out of a bird 100 yards away. So they went out, and it was, it was not even. It was not even fair. All of these fatalities occurred at the battle, first battle of Bull Run. That just about destroyed Walt Whitman. He said, but then the one that took him down, the one that depressed him so, and he wrote about it, of course, was the day that the president was assassinated, Abraham Lincoln. He said... We heard the news. Mother prepared breakfast, other meals afterward, as usual. But not a mouthful was eaten all day by either of us. We each drank a half cup of coffee. That was all. Little was said. We got every newspaper morning and evening and the frequent extras of that period. And we passed them silently to each other.
So what good could come out of the slaughter of Bull Run? What good could come out of the assassination of Honest Abe Lincoln? And I have to tell you that I'm not God and I don't know. But I know God. And I know that God is still in charge. <clears throat> and you say, where, where was God? Where was God when all those boys were dying at Bull Run? Where was God when Abraham Lincoln lay dying with that bullet in his skull? Same place he was when his son was dying on the cross. Same place. When you were going through your darkest hour in your deepest, most depressing moment, where was God? Same place he was when Jesus died on Calvary for your sins and mine. When he suffered so. And he tasted the depths of the dregs of the sins of mankind. Who are we to critique God? Say, God, you're not fair. Let my family, to let my, to let my loved ones, to let my marriage, to let my my children, to let my acquaintances go through these things, to let my nation, to let, to let my church go through these things. I got to say to you, as I am saying to myself tonight, first and foremost, who are we to judge God? Sorrow is the shadow of God's hand. He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. And so whatever the initial cause of that sorrow may have been. God is still there, no matter what, no matter what. A few years ago, Dr. E.L. Bynum, for 44 years, the pastor of the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas, went home to be with the Lord. But before he did, I spent several hours speaking with him. He had known my dad and my uncles, I was sort of in their era, in their generation. And when his church pulpit became vacant, he thought it'd be just a wonderful idea if, if a Winnegar was the pastor. And so he talked to me at length. We reviewed many things, and of course that did not work out. Tabernacle Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas uh, was not God's will for this Winnegar. But he told me about some of the things that had happened. The pastor who had preceded him was the senior pastor, and he was, Bynum was the, was the associate pastor, and he worked with youth before he became the senior pastor. And when, he, when the senior pastor retired, he was voted in, and then for 44 years, he pastored that great ministry down in Lubbock, Texas. There was a family in the church and a little boy professed Christ as Savior and came up through the Sunday school, attended regularly, was baptized and became a fine young man. And then he had some talent, he had some ability and he went on and all of a sudden one day they heard the news that the young man who had come through their Sunday school professed Christ was one of the family members of, of their church was, uh, he had a, he had a uh, number one hit rock and roll record. His name was Buddy Holly. 
Buddy Holly went on to, I mean, set rock and roll on its ear but between Oh Boy and, um, you know, That'll Be the Day and, and making music sound like raindrops and all the things that he did. Uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. But uh, he traveled and had that lifestyle. But in the, in the fall of the year, 1958, he was under conviction, made an appointment to see E.L. Bynum, came to see him, and he said, he said, I'm tired of this life. Rock and roll and the popular music scene does not satisfy the soul. Leaves me empty. He said, I'm a child of God. I'm born again. I meant it when I got saved. I meant it when I professed Christ in baptism here. He said, and I'm going to come back. I'll be back. And E.L. Bynum said, why don't you come this Sunday, walk the aisle, and, and just rededicate your life, and just think the good that it'll do. He says, I can't. I'm under contract. I've got to finish this tour. That was the fall of 1958. As you know, on February the 3rd, 1959, it was an icy, snowy night in Clear Lake, Iowa. And <clears throat> Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and um, J.P. Richardson got in a plane with a pilot and flew into eternity. Crashed. Done. Many people have said, what a terrible, fateful night that was. Buddy Holly died in that plane crash, along with the others. I believe this. God makes no mistakes. God makes no mistakes. I never knew Buddy Holly, but my connection to him was E.L. Bynum. And E.L. Bynum said, that's the truth. That is the absolute truth. And until the 21st century, there were family members from Buddy Holly. They spelled their name differently. He, he shortened He took the E out of it and spelled it H-O-L-L-Y, but it was actually H-O-L-L-E-Y. The Holly family was in the Tabernacle Baptist Church of Lubbock, Texas. I don't have any connection to these people other than secondhand. Uh, my connection to, to Elvis, never knew Elvis, never knew Elvis, but I know this. Mylon Lefevre knew him very well. Mylon Lefevre had written a gospel song without him. It's in our hymnal. Mylon has told me the story several times in person how he hitchhiked from Fort Jackson in South Carolina, 600 miles to Memphis, to be on stage with his family, the LeFevre family, and he sang his new song without him. Little did he realize that Elvis was just off stage gathering material at the quartet convention for his gospel album, and he got his last song from Island, which was without him. And that's my only connection. I, I never met Elvis. But I know I have a friend who met him in an elevator one time and said, Elvis, do you know for sure if you died right now, you go to heaven? And Elvis said, yes, sir, I do. And on the way to whatever floor it was, he asked him how he knew. 
And Elvis said, because when I was a little boy in Tupelo, Mississippi, I walked down the aisle of an old-fashioned church and I asked Jesus Christ in my heart. My preacher friend said, Elvis, if that's true, why all this? Why all this? Speaking of his lifestyle. And Elvis said, because I wanted to see what was on the other side. I wanted to see what was on the other side. Now, only God and those individuals know about their eternal destiny. But here's what I know. I know that God has a plan and a program which is perfect. And if we could see God's perfect plan, and we can, we can know His perfect plan as we're led of the Spirit through the Word of God, but if we could see in heaven His perfect plan, we would be absolutely amazed and astounded. We need to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to live according to the Word of God. The people that I've just mentioned have plenty of sorrow to show for their life. And I'm not their judge. The people that I've mentioned uh, have in their life the opportunity to respond appropriately to God's leadership and whatever He may do, whatever He may say to them through the Word of God. I know this. I know that God will chasten those whom He loves and he won't chasten those that don't belong to him. I know that's true according to Proverbs chapter 3 and other places in Scripture. Chastening of the Lord is a reality. I know about sowing and reaping. I understand that God will, will sometimes kick us out of our comfort zones to get us into a place where we can be used to the maximum and serve him. Uh, and it may not feel good while we're going through it. And pain may not be comfortable, and pain may not be de desirable, but pain may be God's program for us. I've said all that to say this. There's coming a day when sorrows and sighing will flee away, when God shall wipe away all tears, when there'll be no more problems. But until then, it is part of this life that we find ourselves in tonight. And while I would not even attempt to pass judgment on anyone. I would say that God's way is always best. His desire for you and for me is that we might be used for the maximum blessing so that He might be glorified. That's His purpose. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please, tonight? Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking. And how many of you tonight would say, Preacher, something in the message spoke to my heart. Slip your hand up high. Something spoke to my heart. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you tonight, if God has spoken to you, to slip out and come down and have a word of prayer. And I'm going to pray that God will have His will and His way in your heart and life and all those that have listened to the message tonight. Maybe that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to uh, pray from your heart to God right now if you're not sure that heaven is your home. Something like this, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. And right now, 
I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. 